So I was in a pub with my dad. I said, you're round. He said, so are you. Thanks, dad. Now, when I was a kid, I was a fan of the TV show Gladiators. If you haven't seen it, members of the public take on professional athletes in competition to win prizes, while John Fashnu would shout, Awooga! It was the best thing on 90s TV, and I was hooked. Now, when I was nine, a girl I went to school with told me she was going to see it filmed and invited me to go along with her. Now, I didn't believe her, of course. My parents were adamant she wasn't going, but she kept insisting she was. Every half an hour for a month, she kept promising me I could go and see it filmed and meet the stars like Wolf and Jet and everyone's favourite Ace. Of course, when the day did come that we were supposed to go, I never went. Nothing I'd been promised happened. There was no meeting the stars, no watching the show, no hug from Ulrika Johnson. Don't judge me. I sat there on a Saturday night in my pyjamas, crying all the way through Gladiators, my little nine-year-old brain not quite able to work out why someone had made all those promises just to break them. I know, it's been 28 years, get over it, right? But the Irish poet Jonathan Swift once said that pie crusts and promises are made to be broken. Now, we all might be partial to a good pie, I know I am, but no one likes a broken promise. The problem is promises don't really seem to mean what they used to mean these days. I think often they're just a way to get someone to do something we want them to do. Go to an event, join a group, vote for that guy, date them. Promises are easy to make, but sometimes we might expect them to be broken. Politicians can make promises in manifestos, but not keep them. We might make promises in weddings, you know, to have and to hold, but a third of UK marriages end in divorce. It's a lot of broken promises, but we can expect it. Our team's manager says we'll win the league and we finish 10th. We tell someone something in confidence and they gossip about it. We can have promises made to us about work or uni or relationships and they don't get kept. And we live in an age of mistrust. And if we're honest, sometimes we can expect all these promises to be broken. But you know, even if we don't expect it, or even if we do, it can hurt us deeply when the people we love don't keep the promises that matter. Maybe someone promised us they'd never leave, and they did. Or things would get better, and they didn't. Or that they'd change, and then they changed their mind. We might have been promised the house, the job, the promotion, and it never appeared. We get hurt when the people we love don't keep the promises that matter. And whether we'd admit it or not, I think we've all broken a promise, but I know we've all been hurt by promises broken. So what does that mean when it comes to God? There are lots of promises that God makes in the Bible, that he loves us, He's compassionate, he makes us brave, he'll give us strength, he won't leave us. We actually see the character of God revealed in the promises that he makes in Scripture. And God makes a lot of promises in the Bible. But in a world where we can get so used to promises being broken, how do we know God doesn't do the same? Numbers 23.19 tells us that God is not human, that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? 
Scripture tells us that God keeps his promises. And the biggest promise that God makes in Scripture is that we can know him through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus led an abandoned life so we can live an abundant one by knowing God. That we can live lives that are utterly transformed by God's love for us. That is the central promise that God makes through all of Scripture. And it's important we know that God keeps his promises because if you're making a decision to follow Jesus, then you are trusting your life, your soul and your eternal destination to God. It's kind of important that we trust he keeps the promise, right? But the problem is, when we've been hurt by the people we love, not keeping the promises that matter, sometimes we can transfer those hurts onto God. We're promised an abundant life in God through Jesus, but we sometimes that doesn't make it from here to here. We can know it, but not really believe it. We might pray and not really expect an answer. We might doubt that God really loves us. God might put something on our heart and it never comes to pass. We can be shaken to our very cause when life gets hard. Sometimes, it doesn't feel like God keeps his promises. I'll give you an example, right? I've been, I've felt God calling me to ministry for the best part of 10 years. It's been on my heart for a while and I've tried all sorts, but for all kinds of reasons and worked out yet. I'll be honest with you, it has worn me down and it is sometimes easy to doubt God's promises. But I wonder, is this maybe something that we're all facing at some point? You know, maybe God has placed something on our hearts like kids or marriage and it's never happened. Maybe God's calling us to do something and we can't find a way forward. Maybe we need God to bring restoration or hope or healing or joy and we pray and we pray and it never seems to happen. Sometimes it's hard to trust in God's promise of an abundant life in Jesus when it seems a long way off. The good news is, though, we aren't the only people that will have ever struggled with this. Today, we're in the book of Matthew, and we're asking the question, does God keep his promises? Now, um, if you've ever read the Bible, you'll know there's four Gospels, and each of them tells the story of this Jesus bloke in a different way. So Mark's Gospel looks at the idea of Jesus as a servant. Luke's Gospel is very analytical, and it looks at the case for Christ. John writes to the early church to show them that Jesus is God. And Matthew is writing to Jewish religious leaders to show them that Jesus is the Messiah and the King that they've been waiting for. Now, the Jewish people, up to the point where Matthew's been writing, have been through a lot. Genocide, slavery, invasion, civil war. And all through this, God has made them one consistent promise. A king is coming, a Messiah who will save the world and bring an abundant life. He'll bring restoration and hope again and save the world. Now, the problem is a lot of the people who Matthew's writing to missed Jesus. They'd lost their faith in God's promises because they'd been through so much. They'd lost their faith, their hope, their joy, actual sight of what God promised them, even though Jesus was right in front of them. And because of that, Matthew's writing to them to show them one clear message through his gospel. God keeps his promises. Now, in the bit of video we just saw, um, I know what you're thinking. Whole bunch of unpronounceable names. Who cares, right? I think 
when we come to bits like that in the Bible, it's really easy to skip over them. Most of us don't care about our own family trees, so why would we care about someone else's? But 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is useful. God speaks to us through all of it, including lists of names. So through this family tree, Matthew will actually show us everything that we need to know about the character of God and how God has kept his promise in Jesus. So Matthew, as you can see here, gives us three sets of 14 names. So we're going to go Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus. Uh, If you want to try singing the song again, you're more than welcome to. Now, I can see some of you trying to do the maths in your head, trying to make the numbers fit, how many years is a generation. The numbers will not fit. This is not a literal family tree. If you want that, look at the Gospel of Luke. Instead, Matthew uses names and stories that the Jewish religious leaders of the time would have known to paint them a picture of how God kept his promise. So the first thing Matthew shows us in this family tree is that the story of Jesus is true. He starts with people and events And what he's actually saying is, what I'm going to tell you about in this gospel actually happened. Here's how we got here. Now, this isn't a nice sounding introduction that we can just kind of gloss over and ignore, like uh, once upon a time, or this is a story all about how my life got flipped and upside down. Matthew uses real events and real people to paint a picture of how God keeps his promise of an abundant life in Jesus. And because of that, how our lives can be transformed. So why is this promise so important? Well, at the time God made his promise of Jesus, God knew that mankind needed saving from our sins because they cut us off from living an abundant life through relationship with a perfectly holy and loving God. We cannot make it right ourselves. In all the years of human history, if we could have done, we would have done. Lots of people have given us lots of different and silly ways to live life, but none of them have ever worked. And Jesus alone is unique because he didn't give us a bunch of silly rules. Instead, he lived a perfect, sinless life, was murdered on a cross and rose from the dead three days later, making a way back to God. Jesus lived an abandoned life so we could live an abundant one because Jesus Christ was God's ultimate rescue plan. There's no plan B. And all through the Bible in the Old Testament, there's promises from God that rescue is coming. This Messiah, this King of Kings, the Saviour of the world has been promised. And Matthew will show us in these names and family ties that Jesus is that rescue plan because Jesus is the fulfilment of God's promise. So let's jump in with verse 1. And we're going to start with Abraham. Now, he's an incredibly important figure for Matthew to mention because he is the founder of the Jewish people. So it all starts with him. So Abraham is a prophet who was called by God to live an incredible life of faith. And for the most part, he manages that. Abraham is where God starts his promise to the human race. And when we first meet Abraham in scripture, he's 75, childless, he's kind of given up on life. But as bad as things look, God still makes a promise to him. In Genesis 12, we read, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. God promises Abraham a son, and through that son, the whole world is going to know God's love. 
Now, if we look at this genealogy, you'll notice that Isaac is the name after Abraham. And Isaac himself was a miracle child. Abraham and Sarah were in the 90s when they had him. And there's a whole thing in Genesis that Sarah couldn't have children. So God kept his promise. But in verse 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus is also the son of Abraham. So what we see is this promise of God of a son that will change the world is really fulfilled in the person and identity of Jesus. In Galatians 3.16 we read that promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. So this promise wasn't just for Abraham but it was for Isaac, Jacob, Judah and all those who came after which is why this idea of a family tree is so important. In a way, the miracle of Isaac being born to a couple who couldn't have children mirrors the miraculous birth of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus' family tree starts and stops with the birth of a promised child because God keeps his promises. Now we skip 14 generations, we're going to come to David. Now I think we all know a little bit of David's story. He killed the giant Goliath with a stone. He was the first king of Israel. He committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba and murdered her her husband Uriah. David was a very, very complex and a very broken man, but he's also regarded as Israel's greatest king. God also promises him a son, who will change the world. In 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Samuel says to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. Now, when we look at the family tree, we'll see David did actually have a son called Solomon, but Solomon and his 400 wives didn't actually follow God. They turned away from God. And he didn't sit on the throne forever. But in verse 1, we read that Jesus was called the son of David. So Matthew is showing us this promise to David is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And this is a phrase, the son of David. That's something you're going to find all the way through the book of Matthew. It shows us that Jesus is the king who was promised through David because God keeps his promises. We'll skip another 14 generations to verse 11, the exile to Babylon. This is when the entirety of God's people were taken into slavery for 70 years by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The exile was the lowest point in Israel's history because the Israelites lost their cultural identity, their freedom, their country. It was all this stuff that God promised them over generations was snatched away. It was almost like their hope, their joy, their very reason for existing had been taken. But as bad as things seemed, God still promised a saviour. We read in Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the increase of the government and in peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever. And Matthew shows us that Even when things seem at their worst, when it seems like all the hope has gone out of the world, when it seems like your very purpose for existing has been taken from you, God still keeps his promises. Now, there are a lot of names in that family tree we could talk about, like Zadok the priest or the evil king Hezekiah. Absolutely fascinating. Get into your Old Testament and have a look. But there are four names we really do need to talk about. And these are the women in the family tree of Jesus. 
Now, I have to be careful here because Matthew doesn't include this as a statement on gender or identity. But Matthew does use these women to show the most important lesson of all, that God promise of an abundant life through Jesus isn't just for a select group of people, it's for everybody. Now, at the time Matthew was writing, your family tree was a little bit like your CV. You wouldn't include the the worst bits, you might include the good bits. So on my CV, you won't see the time I got sacked by a UK supermarket that will remain nameless, but you might see some other stuff on there. Now, women weren't as valued as they should have been. So for Matthew to include these women... Um, would have been a huge and really bold statement, particularly when the picture you're trying to show is that Jesus is the king that you've been waiting for for thousands of years. And then let's consider the women that Matthew does actually include. We've got Tamar, a woman who slept with her father-in-law. Rahab, a prostitute that God saves from Jericho. Ruth, a Moabite woman who saves the nation of Israel. And Bathsheba, a woman who King David commits adultery with. Now, What I want you to notice is that three out of these four women were not Jewish. They don't belong to the direct descendancy of Abraham. And yet, God still works powerfully through them to bring about his promise of an abundant life in Jesus and transformation for the world. Most of those women as well are known in scripture for their mistakes. Just like every single bloke on that family tree and every single one of us here today all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all broken sinners at the foot of the cross. Hannah mentioned last week that Matthew himself was an outcast. That he was a tax collector that everyone despised. But yet despite that, Jesus still loved him. And by by including these, what Matthew is showing us is that same love that Jesus showed him is available for every single one of us today. That God's promise in Jesus isn't just for a select bunch of people, but it's for the unlikely, the unloved, the unwanted, the unseen and the unknown. This promise isn't just for a certain class or gender or denomination, but Matthew shows us through these women that the promise of God is for everyone and it's particularly for the least and the lost. These women don't just show us that God keeps his promise. They show us that no matter who we are, what we've done, or how much we feel like we don't fit, or how much society condemns us, God's promise of an abundant life in Jesus is still for us. So, what do we do with all this? I think sometimes when we talk about God's promise of an abundant life in Jesus, it all sounds really lovely. But for many of us, we might not even know that God makes promises, let alone that he keeps them. Now, God tells us what this abundant life in Jesus looks like in Scripture. It's a new life. It's spiritual blessings, peace, God supplying our needs. We're equipped to build God's kingdom. We know joy, hope, love, mercy, and forgiveness. God promises us good things because he loves us and all those promises are summed up in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we have to be careful. Just because we want a good thing doesn't mean it's a promise from God. Now I've been doing Slimming World for a long time and I would really love a Big Mac. But just because I want a Big Mac, that's a good thing to me, doesn't mean that's a promise from God. Wish it was. So our starting place needs to be To ask God, God, 
what does your promise of an abundant life in Jesus look like for me? And the way to do that is to get into your Bible. Over the next few weeks and months, as we study the book of Matthew, and as we go really deep into it, and we have an incredible opportunity to dive deep into God's words, to see the depth and the breadth of God's love for us summed up in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So let's ask God to speak to us through his word. Ask for wisdom, guidance, clarity for the promises that God has for you, because I promise you this, he has a ton in there for you. And once we know God's promise of Jesus, we can start figuring out what does this mean for my life? You know, maybe, you know, you've been doing this God thing a little while. Maybe we're just, uh, we know what God's promised us, but we're just not seeing it. Maybe we feel a bit like Abraham or David, that God's promised us something, you know, it's a heavy burden on our hearts and we pray and we pray and it just never happens. You know, maybe God has spoken to you something specific like marriage or a new job. Some of us might be trying for kids. Maybe some of us need breakthrough in our lives and we've needed it for a long time and we pray and it just never comes. Matthew shows us in this family tree that the Israelites were waiting for thousands of years for God's promise, but it still came. God's promise is coming. Don't let what you see make you forget what God has promised. So what if it's been a long time? So what if other people have talked you out of it? God's timing isn't our timing. His promises don't have an expiry date. Just because we might have given up on it doesn't mean he's given up on it. Or maybe we feel a bit like the women in the family tree of Jesus. We maybe feel like we don't fit. That God's promises are great for all those people over there, but we don't see how they could ever be for us. Maybe we feel like we're bad Christians or people have spoken bad things over us or we've been hurt in church or we don't think that God could ever love us. Maybe, if we're honest, we feel pretty far from God right now or maybe we've never even known the love of God. But Matthew's message shows us that Jesus came for those of us who are on the margins. Jesus wasn't afraid to identify with people who didn't fit because we are all misfits in the family tree of Christ. Matthew mentions David and Rahab in the same family tree because Jesus counts kings and prostitutes as his family. It doesn't matter who we are, what we've done, how we think we might not fit. God's promises are still yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The promise of Jesus is for the church, but it's also for the people outside the church, the people that don't fit, the outsiders. God's promise is for everyone and the world needs to know and you need to know that God keeps his promises. I think we've all been through a bit of a weird couple of years. That might be a little bit of an understatement, right? I don't pretend to know where any of you are at right now. But I do know that we have a really special opportunity here in the coming weeks and months. As we dig into the Gospel of Matthew over the next few weeks, as we wrestle with Scripture and what the Bible has for us, we have a chance to stand on God's promise again, to see the truth that God keeps his promises even when we don't understand. That God keeps his promises even when it seems like the world is falling apart. That God keeps his promises even when we can't feel him. That God keeps his promises even when we can't see it. God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and thank you for the promise you made to us in the person of Jesus.
Father, I pray you'd help us to stand on that promise. Help us to claim it, God, to see the truth that you have kept your promise, whether that's for the first time or for the hundredth time. Give us the strength to keep believing that you have kept your promise. Amen.